Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Lord, as we contemplate these words of Christ speaking to us about how we should live as your church and assuring us of his presence among us, I ask, Lord, that you would teach us, that you would educate us through these words and how we can better love one another. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you mention Matthew 18 out in the wild and anyone has any idea of what you're talking about, this is what they'll think of. This section of Matthew 18 is usually what we mean when we refer to Matthew 18 at all, this three-stage procedure that Jesus mentions for dealing with uh, a sinful offense against you. In other words, Matthew 18 is synonymous with the topic of church discipline, Let's savor that phrase for just a moment. Church discipline. Hmm. When people hear that phrase, there are two common reactions that they have to the idea of church discipline. In the outside world, the reaction is shock that that is even a thing. Because after all, who are we to judge? In matters of religion, that's highly subjective. It's highly personal. That's between me and God. What role does anybody else have in disciplining me religiously? There's another reaction, though, oftentimes an insider reaction to people within the church when they hear that term, church discipline. Also shock, but shock at the abuses of discipline. You hear that word, discipline, and you think of all the stories of heavy-handed over-policing, of a little power going to the head of petty tyrants in the church, making other people miserable. If you're one of those people who thinks the church might be better off without church discipline, you're not alone. Most people feel this. The bad news is, though, the state of the church, the conditions which make us feel like we could do without church discipline, are not the result of church discipline. They're the result of the opposite. 
They are the result of what happens when church discipline, as Jesus describes it, is not happening. The good news, I suppose you could say, for those who want to do without church discipline, is that the church is basically doing without church discipline, for the most part, at least as Jesus understands it, and what we see now are the results. Paradoxically, what we need, if we're concerned about what we see in the church, is not less church discipline. It's actually more always assuming that the discipline we're talking about is the discipline that Jesus is talking about and and no other. So what we want to do as we look at these words is try to understand church discipline Jesus' way. And there's a shortcut to doing this. There's just a little adjustment you have to make in your mind, and you'll be seeing it more or less in the right way. We just have to change our terminology a little bit. So at this point... Stop thinking church discipline. Erase that word discipline for just a moment. Replace it with the word discipling, and you'll get the point. Because church discipline, rightly understood, is church discipling. Because supporting believing sinners as they deal with their ongoing sin is fundamental to making disciples. And that's a mission that the church cannot afford to abandon. Also because supporting believing sinners as they respond to being sinned against is also fundamental to making disciples. And that calling of the church, too, is something we have to recover, something we must restore. Because if the church is not doing these things, then it is not making disciples. Discipline is essential to discipleship. So as we think about church discipline, church discipling, uh, there's three things I I want to assure you of right off the bat. Uh, First of all, yes, it's a thing. This really is a thing in the Bible. Uh, But also, yes, there are abuses, and we need to be honest about that. But then also, yes, it is essential. It is essential to the life of the church. Uh, those aren't the three points for my sermon. Those are the three points for the first point of the sermon. So uh, hang on. First of all, it's a thing. Church discipline is a thing. Once you start making the adjustment in your mind and realizing that discipline is discipling, that those ideas are intertwined, you might remember that you've heard me say before that discipline has two aspects, a positive and a negative When we think about what's happening in our text, we're thinking of the negative sense of church discipline, like something goes wrong, there's some fault, and so it has to be addressed. But most church discipline isn't negative, it's positive. It's the way that the teaching ministry of the church forms us to follow Jesus. That is also discipline. It encourages us to be more and more like Christ. The negative is what we usually focus on, But the positive is actually what we devote most of our time in the church to doing. And I'd like to think that the better we are at the positive sense of church discipline, then the less we have to deal with the negative sense. But having said that, we'll always have to deal with the negative sense because there will always be ongoing sin in the church. As we're being sanctified, we're always going to be sinning against one another. 
and we're always going to be sinned against. So no matter how well we do the positive discipline, we're never going to get rid of the need for the negative. We'll never get rid of the need to address the effects of sin. Now, Matthew 18 is the only place in Scripture where we get this three-stage process that Jesus outlines. But it is hardly the only place in Scripture that talks about this topic. This is actually something the New Testament talks about a lot. If you're skeptical, I just want to give you a flavor of the New Testament's teaching on this. In Luke 17, verse 3, which is the parallel passage to Matthew 18, Luke gives us the whole idea here in summary. There, Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. That's the general principle. But if you go to John chapter 20, verse 23, Jesus says to the disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So that's keys of the kingdom language as well. If you look at the epistle of James, it literally ends. The whole book of James ends with these words. James writes, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If you look in the Pauline epistles, you'll find this idea of rebuking sin and recovering sinners throughout. In Galatians 6, verse 1, Paul writes, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. He's preparing Timothy to take on his pastoral charge in 1 Timothy 5. Paul says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So Timothy as an elder is being equipped to do this task of discipline. So is Titus. In Titus 3, Paul writes, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And then to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God will judge those who are outside. We could go on, but the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is this. Yes, discipline, correction is a thing. It is essential to discipleship, and it is a responsibility that is entrusted to the church of Jesus Christ, whose elders are equipped and empowered to do it. The authority to administer that discipline, it's delegated to the church by Jesus. It is entrusted to the elders he has called. And yes, excommunication, that that exclusion from the community is in Scripture the ultimate sanction against unrepentant offenders. 
Obviously, in those texts, there's a lot of details to work out, a lot of things to think about. But hopefully you can see that this is not controversial. There's nothing iffy about this. This is a thing in the church. And if the church isn't doing it, then it's neglecting something that Scripture teaches. But yes, church discipline also has a bad reputation. If we can be honest about what Scripture teaches, I think we can also be honest about the abuses and the excesses, from the abuse scandals and cover-ups throughout the church to the rise and fall of Mars Hill and similar outrages. Church discipline has often been misused and abused. So let me say it clearly. If a church refuses to act on wrongdoing because the victim didn't follow the right procedure, that's an abuse. That's an abuse. Do you really think that the same Jesus who just told us that it would be better to have a millstone put around your neck and to be drowned at the bottom of the sea than to offend against one of his little ones would then turn to the little one and say, yes, I know you were sinned against, but you didn't follow the Matthew 18 procedure, so tough luck. Of course not. Using Jesus' words as some sort of uh, get-out-of-jail-free card, that's contrary to the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. Also, if a church conceals crimes and protects perpetrators from justice because they're handling it internally, because they're treating words of repentance as if that gets you off the hook for the consequences of your actions, that is also an abuse, an egregious abuse of what Jesus is teaching here. And those who do those things in the name of God, those who twist his word and exploit his sheep, are outside the church as Jesus defines it. And as Paul says, God will judge those outside the church. But more fundamentally, those abuses are not church discipline. Because those abuses are not discipling. In fact, they're the opposite of discipleship. You don't disciple sinners by letting them get away with their transgressions. You don't disciple sinners by concealing their offenses or hardening your heart to their victims. You disciple sinners by calling them to repentance. And when they repent, when they turn from their sin and turn toward Christ, restoring them, that's discipleship. And yes, that is essential. That is essential to the mission of the church for two reasons. First, the church is a community founded on repentance and restoration. Like this is a community that exists because its members have admitted their sin, have admitted that they are by nature sinners, have no hope in themselves for salvation, need Jesus Christ in order to be saved. We have all publicly turned from our sin, are turning from our sin, and are striving to follow Christ. Which means, secondly, that ongoing sin as a reality among believers, although it is a reality, like every offense calls into question the identity of the church. As people who have repented of our sins, who are endeavoring by the power of the Spirit to live as Christ has called us to live, every time we sin against one another, every time we exploit uh, our hard in dealing with one another, we call into question the reality of what this community 
is all about. And something has to be done about that question mark. It can't just stand. We can't just be hypocritical and say we repent of our sins, but when we actually sin against people, do nothing about it. Discipleship, in other words, is actually based on a particular approach to the reality of sin. You think about sin and how we deal with sin in society and in the church. There are a lot of different ways you see people responding. Um, one reaction to sin is basically to turn a blind eye to it. There are a lot of people who, who don't like the thought of sin at all, who don't like to hear people talking about sin, who think we're too focused, we're obsessed with sin. And it would be better if we would just set that aside and move on and not make that a big deal. That's convenient now, but it's disastrous in eternity because turning a blind eye to transgression basically means doing nothing about it, like letting it continue, letting it rain. That kind of an attitude, although it may seem like a softer approach, is essentially rewarding the offender at the expense of those who are hurt. If we don't rebuke sin, if we don't identify sin as sin, then what we're saying is that those who are hurt by it, who are being destroyed by it, have no recourse whatsoever. So there's another attitude that we often see towards sin. Oftentimes in the church is a reaction against that first one, and it's this, let's crush the sinner. Let's be hard on sin. Let's sniff it out. And when we get any whiff of it, let's punish the source of that sin. Let's punish it so hard that people will think twice before they sin again. Shaming people, ostracizing the offender, that would be justice. That would give them what they deserve. Only who among us would cast the first stone? If we go down the path of punishing sinners, recognizing that we're all sinners, well, that could be tough. And punishment alone won't end the reign of sin. It won't do anything to solve the problem of sin. It only ends the sinner. So, our attitude towards sin, or to put it more precisely, the attitude towards sin of Christian discipleship is to rebuke sin in hope of repentance so that there can be restoration. That is what discipleship does in the presence of sin. That is discipleship's goal in a nutshell. If you keep doing that as a community over and over again, rebuking sin in hope of repentance so that there can be restoration, that process over time by the power of the Spirit, that is what discipleship is. A discipling church is a church that is focused not on destroying sinners, but on repairing sinners. That's the difference. If you look at Matthew 18 as an example of this, you'll see that in this procedure, there is some hope that is hidden even here. As Jesus describes this three-part procedure, when you reflect on it, there's something really, I think, assuring about the way that discipline works. So this three-stage process, it's not 
what we would call like, like in legal terms, Jesus isn't stating like a due process thing. Like Matthew 18 is not a procedure that Jesus introduces to the church in order to protect the rights of those who are accused the way we might in our legal system. There's something else that is happening here. Jesus assumes the guilt of those who are accused here. The question is how to deal with the reality of that guilt. Although I think it's fair to say that this procedure would help even in situations where the guilt is in question because sometimes we feel that we've been sinned against, but maybe we haven't. Maybe we've misunderstood. So think about those stages. Like first, there's that one-on-one confrontation. In the church of Jesus Christ, we're all both offenders and offended. Right? We sin against others, and we are sinned against. Disciples endure offenses against themselves, hoping those who wrong them will repent and be restored. That's what it means to be a disciple, to endure when people sin against you, and to actually hope for the people who offend you that they could be restored. Now, how can you live that way? On what basis can you have a hope like that, even for the people who sin against you? Well, the basis is that you yourself have been forgiven. Right? It's out of that reality of forgiveness that you can entertain such hopes. But Jesus, as you can see from the example he sets in the Gospels, was not a doormat. Jesus wasn't a passive enabler of abuse. And yet, on the cross, as he was being crucified, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. So that Stephen, as he's being stoned, emulates Christ by entertaining a similar hope for those who are killing him. And in so doing, models discipleship for us. If we're going to love our enemies, let's start by loving our wayward brothers and sisters first. Instead of dwelling on our hurts, rebuke the sinner and seek their repentance. Now, that term rebuke needs some clarification. One commenter on this passage notes that to rebuke is not to scold someone or to abuse them verbally for their conduct, but rather to bring the offensive matter to their attention in the hope that they will repent of their actions and be restored to the community. So when you hear rebuke, don't think it's open season on everyone who offends against you and it's time to get all your anger out. The act of rebuking is the act of calling attention to the offense in the hope of repentance. That's that first step. Think about the second step, though. That doesn't work. And so now we come back and we bring others with us, witnesses. If you think about what this stage of the process communicates to the offender, it's like saying, it's not just me calling you to repent, it's us. Right? There is a collective will of the church that is manifested here. I think this part of the process actually is what helps uh, distinguish between what we might say are frivolous accusations and substantive ones, right? Sometimes we're oversensitive. Sometimes we call people on every little thing. But when you go to your brothers and sisters looking for your witnesses to go and confront, and they all say to you, you know what, I think you're making too much of this, they're counseling you in discipleship, like not to go down a path you shouldn't. 
But when you share your situation with them and they're like, you know what, you're right, this is wrong, this is wrong, this, this shouldn't happen, let's go and let's talk to them. Now you have that affirmation, right, that we as a community recognize that this shouldn't happen and something needs to be done about it. Not only that, though, but you see here the church functioning as a support structure for those who are sinned against, that you're not alone in that situation, that there are others, brothers and sisters, who can come alongside you and are invited to do that. If I've been wounded, I've been sinned against, it's not gossip to share that with my fellow brothers and sisters and ask for their help in seeking repentance and restoration. It's what Jesus says to do. And when we're called upon as brothers and sisters to bear witness in that way, we should be quick to want to see that reconciliation. We shouldn't discourage people from addressing sin so that we don't rock the boat. Instead, if it is sin, together we should want to see the repentance and reconciliation of the offender. But if that doesn't work, Jesus says, bring it to the church. Right, bring it to the church. Bring it to the elders of the church. He immediately goes uh, into keys of the kingdom language again, repeating what he said in Matthew 16 about that authority that has been granted. So you have further recourse. Right? Jesus shows us that his ecclesia, his church, is not just there to support us in endurance. It also has the authority to render judgment. That authority is what's summed up in the keys to the kingdom language. It wasn't Peter alone. We saw in Matthew 16, it's Peter who's granted this authority. But here we see the elders collectively, the church collectively being addressed in this way, granted this authority. It's not an individual, but the elders together vested with the authority, and not as individual elders, but as a plurality of elders acting in unity. Interesting, too, to note, uh, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, uh, usually you hear that phrase out of context, and it sounds like a formula for invoking the presence of God. Like, if you're feeling alone and unheard by God, if you could gather at least one other believer together, and we could pray or something, then he would, like, appear which is hard to reconcile with the reality of an omnipresent God. Like, in what sense do you need a formula to invoke the presence of a God who is present always and everywhere? Well, you don't. That's not what this is about. The two or three who are gathered in my name are not just random people who happen to believe. This is a plurality of elders rendering judgment in the church. This phrase, in my name, is synonymous with something like, uh, under my rule, under my authority. When the church acts under the authority of Jesus Christ, Jesus is there among them. Those judgments have his authority. He renders judgment through them. So Matthew 18 means that there's hope for those who sin and for those who are sinned against, right? For the sinner, it means that even the ones you harm will seek your repentance and restoration, and so will the community of faith, and so will the elders. So that when you go astray, when you do the thing that by 
God's grace you don't want to do, you won't be cut loose, you won't be crushed, but everyone around you will seek to see you restored, if at all possible. But there's hope for those sinned against as well, because those sinned against know that they're not alone, but will be supported in their discipleship by their brothers and sisters, by the Lord acting through his under-shepherds. Basically, the message of Matthew 18 to both sinner and those sinned against is the same. It is you will be discipled. You will be discipled. But those words at the end are the words I think we ought to hold on to, that we ought to take away with us. Jesus' words, there I am among them. Because that's actually the foundation of all of this. That's the foundation of everything that's described in this Matthew 18 process, Christ's presence. It's no accident that the final word on discipline is about the presence of Christ. There am I among them. Like As a church, we acknowledge that we are all sinners. We turn from our sin to Christ. We encourage one another to keep turning away from sin toward him, and we submit to one another and to him, all of which would be utterly useless if not for the presence of Christ. All of that would be vain effort if Christ was not here among us. Christ's presence in and among us is not some added blessing that we hope for. It is the only power that makes any of this possible. There's no repentance without his presence. There is no reconciliation without his presence. And there's no restoration without his presence. Apart from him, there's none of it. So that when you see a church that isn't a place of repentance and restoration, you see a church where it's destruction and not repair and restoration, you can be sure of one thing. Jesus isn't among them. Because when Jesus is present, it's repentance. It's restoration. It's repair. Where there's only hardness and anger and resistance, that's not the church. That's outside it. We're not there yet, but in Matthew 28, ten chapters away, we get that commission to the church to make disciples. And it's fascinating if you study that word because Jesus follows it up with an assurance of his presence. He says, behold, I am with you always. And there's an interesting thing in the Greek that is being translated there. Uh, Peter Lightheart points this out. Following the Greek word order, when we read, I am with you always, what Jesus says in Greek is, I with you am. I with you am. Which is interesting, because I am, as we just heard in our lectionary reading, that's the divine name, right? That's the name by which God is known. It's the name Jesus uses when he identifies himself with the Father, I am. But in that turn of phrase, the I and the am are separated. They bracket (laughs) you. 
with you. Lighthouse says the divine name here is enclosing the promise of Emmanuel. Jesus' disciples are included in the divine identity. God will not be I am unless he is I dot 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 am with us in his midst, with us incorporated into triune life. God refuses to be God without us, but overcomes death in order to be God with us. Making disciples is only possible if God is with us, if the divine encloses and surrounds us, breathing life into us. So, understood rightly, church discipline isn't some awkward behind-the-scenes doctrine that we'd be better off without. It is a gift that God with us makes possible. It's a work that God with us does within us. And if you want to turn from your sin and follow Christ, you can only do it with his people. You can only do it with this greatest sanctifying gift that those people can give you, that when you stray from him, they call you back. This is a charge to us as a church to think differently about this responsibility, but it's also a charge to myself. I gleaned something else as I was reading Peter Lightheart here, uh, not from him, actually. It's from Jane Austen, uh, which we'll get to in a second. It speaks to me because, personally, church discipline is something I struggle with. I don't like the term any more than you do, and I like doing that thing even less than I like saying it. I grew up in a church that didn't practice church discipline, and I always told myself that if I could just be in a church that did, everything would be fine. It would be a kind of utopia. And then I discovered that that's not always the case. That oftentimes when we try to do the thing that we're meant to do, we don't do it very well. If there's one thing worse than not doing church discipline, it's doing church discipline badly in a way that brings the church of Jesus Christ into disrepute. And as a result of that, I've always been conflicted. So what I'm sharing with you here is not just what I see in the text, but it's also what the text has shown me, if you get the distinction. It's what I think Jesus is telling us here so that we can see the importance of this thing that we often struggle with, and having seen it, can embrace our own part in it as well. Because it's important that we not just embrace it in the abstract, but that we commit ourselves to actually doing it. And that's where Jane Austen comes in. There's a quote uh, from Mansfield Park that describes the role of a clergyman. And I think that role applies to all of us as well. There's a character in that novel, Mary Crawford, who says, a clergyman is nothing. To which another character, Edmund Bertram, who almost had a really cool name but spelled it wrong right at the end, he replies, he he won't let that statement stand. He says this, uh, I'm not going to give you the whole thing, but kind of the essence of it. He says, a clergyman cannot be high in state or fashion. He must not head mobs or set the tone in dress. But I cannot call that situation nothing, which has the charge of all that is of the first importance to mankind, individually or collectively considered, temporally and eternally, which has the guardianship of religion and morals, and consequently of the manners which result from their influence. 
A fine preacher is followed and admired, but it is not in fine preaching only that a good clergyman will be useful in his parish and his neighborhood. It will, I believe, be everywhere found that as the clergy are or are not what they ought to be, so are the rest of the nation. That as the clergy are or are not as they ought to be, so are the rest of the nation. You can't judge the state of discipleship in the church by looking at the celebrities of the church. You can't judge by looking at the famous preachers on their platforms. You judge by looking at the communities. People tell me all the time what's wrong with the church. And I have to ask, is that what you've experienced here? The thing that you're describing, is that what you've seen here? And often the answer is no. To which I want to say, well, then let this be the church in your eyes. Like, don't judge based on what you've seen out there. Judge based on what you've experienced. As I am or am not what I ought to be, so is the rest of the church. As you are or are not what you ought to be, so is the rest of the church. So let us be what Christ has called us to be and let the church be a discipling church, a community that takes its role seriously, a place of repentance and restoration. Let's practice our faith with one another. Let's overlook slight offenses, but let's rebuke serious ones. And when we are rebuked, let's be quick to confess and to reconcile. When we're out of accord with one another, let's not harden ourselves, but instead soften ourselves. When the elders call us to account, let's be quick to listen. Not because we want to be well-behaved, not because we want to be good people or anything like that, but because we want to live in Christ's presence on his foundation, at peace with his people. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.